This episode of the 614 Startups Podcast is brought to you by Ecove Capital. Are you a researcher or an inventor with a product or technology you want to commercialize and you're not quite sure how to get started? The team at Ecove can help you validate your idea, secure funding, and provide the support necessary to help your startup succeed. Check out Ecove Capital for more details. And Thompson Hine. Whether you just have an idea or a newly created startup or already working to scale, Thompson Hines' team of early and growth stage attorneys will provide you the support you need to get funded and succeed. Created to meet the needs and budgets of startups, Thompson Hines' quick launch has menu-based pricing and tons of great content. Visit thquicklaunch.com today. 614 Startups Nation, welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. My name is Elio Harmon, and I'm your host. And I've been going uh, stir-crazy, a little cabin fever since COVID-19. And this is the first time I'm back on the mic recording, and I got a very special guest for you. My man, Bill Bommel. Am I saying yes, that correctly? perfect. Yeah. Of Ohio Innovation Fund. Welcome, Bill. How you doing? I'm doing great, Elio. Thank you very much, man. Great to be here. All right, man. So I'm on lockdown like everybody about three weeks ago and I get an email from Christina. I believe. Christina, yep. Yep. And she's like, yo, Bill wants to talk to you. Uh, he wants to talk about COVID-19 and a wide range of issues. And so I go to Ohio Innovation Fund. I've heard of you guys before. Uh, mainly, I've seen things that, J- that Jill has done. Yeah. Um, and so I check out the resume. The resume is solid. <laughs> And I'm like, yo, set up the phone call. I need to talk to Bill. And after that phone call, man, I understand why. You're a wealth of knowledge. You're very passionate about startups. So I'm excited to get you on here. I think the community needs to hear from you, uh, especially for people who haven't heard of you before. So thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest. Yeah, great to be here. All right, man. So uh, everybody starts with a bit of the background because we're a small community. We're all getting to know one another. So why don't you share your story? Sure. Yeah, I actually uh, grew up in Cincinnati, so have ties to Ohio from having grown up there. Uh, went to Ohio State undergraduate, went to University of Michigan School up north for graduate school. Spent about uh, four or five years in Minneapolis as a venture capitalist. We had actually had an office in Minneapolis and an office out in Silicon Valley, primarily investing in Minneapolis, Boston, New York, Chicago a little bit, uh, somewhat Atlanta, not so much around the mes- rest of the Midwest. And then 15 years ago, actually 17 years ago, went out to Silicon Valley and, and spent obviously 17, 17 years there as a venture capitalist, both on the tech and med tech side. Uh, had uh, five companies went public, 10 companies were acquired between 100 a million and a billion, uh, both on the tech and med tech side, SAP, Oracle, Medtronic, Stryker, those types of companies as far as acquisitions, public companies like Dexcom, Infinera and such. And I had actually been uh, starting about uh, 2007 or so, been because I have family back here, been coming you know, over the summertime, so particularly around Fourth of July weekend. Uh, and one time went to an angel group, kind of invested in an angel fund back in, as passively, like in 2007. It was kind of tracking their progress. Uh, and over time, I thought early on the deals were kind of okay. Um, a lot of the deals were kind of me too versus what we have out in Silicon Valley, like a disaster recovery, you know, recovery company, very similar to what we had out there. Uh, but then probably in 2013, 2014, things started to change and noticed that the type of software and med tech and other opportunities, well, not as many great opportunities were similar in quality and potential to a lot of things I was seeing out in Silicon Valley. And, and that kind of is what really, piqued my interest uh, in, in potentially coming back this way. And what happened from there is that actually Ohio State and Ohio University did a search because they were wanting to, there's a lot of seed funds and angel funds here in Ohio. You have, you know, like Cincy Tech and Queen City Angels down in Cincinnati, OTAF, Rev1 here in Columbus, up north, Nose Coast Angel Fund, you know, uh, Jumpstart and such. Similarly, Tech Growth in Athens, you have some Dayton, Toledo and all that but not many traditional Series A venture firms for capital, but also to provide that expertise as far as scaling the company. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think both Ohio State and Ohio University, Kent State, all realize that need here um, for their students you know, who are interested in entrepreneurship or interested in venture capital or interested in startups to really help get things going. Um, and so they did a search uh, on the coast for someone with ties to the Midwest or ties to Ohio that had been a successful venture capitalist either in Boston or Silicon Valley. 
And I think there's probably two or three of us. There really just aren't that many. Uh, so I came back and my biggest thing was that the venture fund be structured as a traditional venture fund. I didn't want to come back here and do economic development because if you talk about economic development to people on the coast, all they think about is charity and losing money. That's just like, okay, it's not like real businesses. I want to do you know, companies that could kind of stand on, its, uh, on their own that merited the investments that merited the time and effort, you know, to help them realize their potential. So that was, that was a big part of it. I also didn't want to be tied into politics either, because if you can come back here and be a hero early on by saying, oh, you know, everyone that's involved in this, we're investing in their companies and their favorite companies. And then they all got a business and you really haven't achieved anything. Yeah, I understand. Now, now, was it always uh, uh, in your kind of goal or aspiration to become an investor? Did you fall into it? Uh, how, how did this whole investor thing come about? Because you've latched on, man, and you've been in yeah. this ever since. So how did you how did you become an investor? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've always been kind of an entrepreneur, and then I became an investor. Um, starting actually in Cincinnati, I had I think thirty or forty uh, lawns I cut each summer, and like forty or fifty driveways. So I, I always did that. Saved up my money, was out there doing that. Bought my first car that way. Bought the great Pioneer stereo for my first car that way. Um, and just have always had that spirit. I just, you know, to be honest, I don't fit in in large corporations. I just, I, I think I, I just, I'm too impatient. I want things to happen now, not later. I want to think big, not incrementally. So I've always had a kind of innovative, fast moving, you know, kind of spirit to myself and actually started out, uh, the firm I was with Brinson partners was now at Adam street capital. Uh, they're out of Chicago before I, I was there for about a year or two before I went to Minneapolis. And it's the time when tel- the telecommunications was just starting to boom. And so they actually had me become their telecom investor. You'll learn about all the different things in terms of, you know, uh, switching and, and routers and all the things that go into a telecom network that I eventually translated over a data network. And kind of went from there into software and a little bit into med tech and just kind of built up, built up from there. But I've always and the one thing I liked about coming back here to the Ohio Innovation Fund is it allowed me to do both. Because out there in Silicon Valley for about, you know, for the first five, six years, you know, building up a network, building up, you know, contacts, building up a reputation. And then I was starting to invest in the same people over and over again, very successfully. You had one CEO that sold a cloud company for $800 million, invested in him again, did it again. Similar like the group at Infinera, uh, you know, we, that went public. Uh, one of the founders, Drew Perkins, found Mojo Vision, invested in that. They just actually closed around the day of $51 million in Series B. So, but it was kind of on autopilot. And, I, and so really the most exciting part for me about coming back to Ohio is both the in, investing piece, but really Ohio Innovation Fund itself is a startup. It's it's you know it's a early stage classic VC firm here in the heartland you know right in the middle of all in Ohio and that challenge of building the team of building what our vision is building how we you know uh, review deals how we work with deals which is very different than the West Coast um, has just been really exciting so it's a startup within an investment firm I kind of love combining both of those aspects to what I do right, now when I hear pioneer stereo I get excited now talk to me <laughs> about what kind of speakers went with that stereo and what were you bumping on the pioneer <laughs> back in those days I was actually a Van Halen fan so <laughs> okay here we go here we go well we got to listen to some Van Halen together man on you know on 10 or something right yeah yeah, um, yeah. so um, well, you have the track record, as you said, you've uh, yeah. scaled, uh, you know, invested in and, and helped scale multiple companies, not only to, to exit, um, but also you sold those companies or they went yeah. public. Um, now, what was it about, you think, your investment style or investment philosophy, or was it just about picking the right companies? How do you, how, what do you attribute your success to for all the companies that you invested in and then helped grow and then finally exit? Yeah, I'd say it's a weakness that became a strength. So I don't, my undergraduate is a, a, a BSBA at Ohio State in the Honors Accounting Program. And I got my MBA at University of Michigan. So I'm not a computer scientist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a you know, chemical engineer, a chemist, a biologist. Um, and so to, to some extent that, you know, when I'm at, you know, we're, we recently are investing in some companies with Mike Triplett here who had done MyoNexus here in town. So I don't have that deep science background. 
when I talk to electrical engineers or computer scientists that are founding software or data science or cyber companies, I don't have that deep engineering background to connect on that level, which to some extent is a weakness, but I've turned it, I believe, into a strength. And what I mean by that is things have to just make sense at a very simplistic level. So I think, you know, I do have one of the uh, things that I do have is good analytical skills. So kind of able to kind of think through and, and, and solve problems, you know, in a very analytical method and kind of making sure things make sense. So I almost have to dumb down these companies to say, do they make sense to me? And, and if they do make sense to me, they're going to make sense to the market. Mm-hmm. And so I've noticed that about all my successes, no matter how technical they are, they kind of, I could explain them to anyone at a cocktail party. They say, yeah, that makes sense. Take two different examples. One on the on the healthcare side, you know, if someone is is diabetic, and and they have to remember to stick their finger with a needle every five or ten minutes, and then oh, did I just eat or what have you? Well, what if you had a monitor that basically gave you a reading every five minutes? Am I too high? And on my way up, therefore, give myself some insulin. Or am I too high on my way down? Therefore, don't overload myself by giving myself more insulin. If I'm too low, stop me from crashing. Would that make sense? That went to your phone. Absolutely. And that became Dexcom. Something very, very technical I did was a, a firm called Infinera. They're dealing with indium phosphide chips and all this, you know, a, a, you know very, you know, deep te- technical, uh, you know, a bunch of different deep technical expertises had to come together to create this. But at a high level, they're saying, okay, right now in the average network, in the switch that goes in a data network or in a, a, a communications network, there's 300 components in there. What if we took 200, 250 of those and combined and, and made them into a single chip size of your fingernail? Would that be, and I don't even understand how it works. Right. The bottom line is it's going to be smaller. It's going to be less costly. It's going to take up less space and it's going to be driven by software. So it's going to be a lot more powerful. And that's what drove Infinera. So I think, you know, making companies boil it down to kind of what do you do? Why is it important? What's your inherent advantage? So I can understand and then I basically partner with people that are in the industry from a technical perspective to kind of do, you know, kind of partner with them from a technical due diligence perspective that are expert to provide that level of diligence as well. But I think it's really making companies boil it down to simple, impactful, concise statements that I can understand and therefore customers and others will understand it, it, uh, the value that they bring. Got it. And, you know, we'll, we'll loop back to that simplicity thing. Because for first-time founders, and, and yeah. the reason why I think you kind of go back to a founder who's done it before, yeah. I think it was Twain who said, I didn't have enough time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. Yeah. Right. And, and brevity is a skill. Yeah. It's something that needs to be practiced, and a lot of first-time founders struggle with that. Um, but what was the sales pitch? I mean, Ohio State with OU, they're coming together. They want to they create Ohio Innovation Fund. They go out, they do their recruiting. There are, like you said, only three people out there yeah, yeah. or so with the track record and then maybe the affinity for Ohio. What was the sales pitch? What attracted you to come back to Ohio and build the Ohio Innovation Fund? And what is it? Yeah, and, and that, my answer has changed over time. My, my or the, I should say expanded. The first reason to come back was I thought enough of the raw material is in place to actually come back to my home state and make a huge difference. Uh, in starting a process of traditional venture investing and you know improving the startup scene incrementally, hopefully more than incrementally, um, didn't know what I was going to find, but thought, okay, there's enough raw material here. There's places like Ohio State, OU, and the different universities that have research and other capabilities. There's you know uh, others like Battelle and the Cleveland Clinic. So you had enough raw you know, kind of research or innovation going on. There seemed to be some pretty good software developers, some pretty good med tech people. Uh, so a lot was there to kind of, of, of mold together. Um, and that was the initial reason to come back. A large part of it was, it was, it seemed good enough to, it's something I really wanted to do coming back to my home state. You know, that has trans, that has changed over time because now I really have gone from wanting to just be doing venture capital in Ohio as a classic venture capitalist to really transforming Ohio. And a large part of that has gone through because of the positive reaction of the generation coming up. If I look at the generation of millennials, the generation that's in in college right now, graduate from college, they may not say, I want to be an entrepreneur. 
but they say, I want to have an impact. I want to work. I want to collaborate. I want to work in, in cross-functional teams. I want to be innovative. You know, all the things that you can be as an entrepreneur. So, you know, that the ability to transform Ohio and transform our economy from insurance and consumer packaged goods, which are all great industries, right? Stable, positive, love nationwide, love Procter & Gamble and all that. But two, data science and cybersecurity and cell and gene therapy and all these you know, industries of the future that are the high growth industries are highly innovative, are moving very fast. It has exceeded my expectations from that perspective that we can do this much transformative work. And we've been able to attract strategic partners into Ohio like Facebook, like Microsoft, like Slack, like Sanofi, like Genentech, like Citi, like Dell, to come in and invest in and or partner with our companies, which has been a very pleasant surprise because these, these established companies are seeing that the reason they're coming here is they see us impacting their markets. We get on the radar with their customers and they want to come and partner with those companies uh, and perhaps maybe it's going to be more than a partnership in the future, but you know, that type of initial relationship is formed. Um, but the biggest positive has really been the students. You know, I started out, you'd mentioned Jill earlier. Jill was the first intern I had back, I think in the summer of 2016. Um, and so I literally like for the first year we started, I just had a summer internship. I think I had three people apply from Ohio state and that was it. I don't think anyone applied from OU or anywhere else. And so uh, she, she came on board. She was uh, in the uh, executive MBA program. Then she graduated from there and joined full time. I think the next year we had maybe 10 or 15 people apply for we had probably three interns, something like that. Since then, fast forward to where we are today, we had close to 200 people apply just from Ohio State alone for our summer internship program, just our summer internship program. We will have over 100 students this year that will come through OAF in one of three programs. We have about 50 freshmen, sophomore, where we do a, a kind of a one-day shadow experience. Hey, I'm a freshman, sophomore. I've heard about entrepreneurship. I've heard about venture capital. I want to learn, learn a little bit more about it. We have four times zero of a boot camp. We do it over um, spring break, winter break, beginning of summer, end of summer, which is anywhere from 10 to 15 students who spend a week with us, evaluating a couple of, of potential live companies we're looking at, um, and also hear each day from different CEOs, founders, and, and, and entrepreneurs at our companies to kind of get the next flavor of VC and entrepreneurship. Usually those are kind of sophomores, you know, a few juniors. And then we'll have about five to 10 uh, summer interns here at OIF that are usually in their, you know, just exiting their junior year, rising seniors. They're saying, I'm thinking, you know, one of them was, for example, Matt. Uh, Matt Benson was from OU. He was a, an in, intern here saying, I might want to start a company. I'm not sure. I want to learn about it. I want to learn how do you start a company legally, raising money, the pitch, all that type of stuff. He came here as a summer intern, and then he came on as an entrepreneur residence after he graduated, and then out of that, created eFuse. eFuse has a leading, you know, I think nine to 12 leading e-game, it's an e-sports, e-gaming platform that has nine to 12 leading uh, e-sports and e-gaming, you know, uh, players as, you know, as influencers. He has, you know, major, some are announced, some are not announced yet, you know, including Buckeyes like Braxton Miller and those as investors. And there's a lot more behind that, even on a national level, as far as well-known national, you know, sports figures and gaming figures are, gonna be, you know, are part of it already. They're going to be announced over time here. And that all came out of the internship program. He was able to raise close to $2 million in a seed round. And he was an intern less than two, two years ago here at, at wow. So it's really been an incredible experience. And we've been able to replicate that at our companies. The first summer we tried to do that at the companies after Jill was here for a little while, I think they viewed us as, hey, you want us to babysit your LP students? Nah, we're not that interested. So I said, okay, just send me some projects. So they sent projects, I'd send, I, then I'd send back the results. And they're saying, wow, Bill, great job, thank you. I said, well, that wasn't me. Or was it Jill? No, it wasn't Jill. Who was that? That was our interns that did that. Oh, they did this analysis of the strategic partnership or this analysis of a potential acquirer or this analysis of a market or what have you. And they're really impressed. So like one of our companies here in Columbus, Aware, has had 16 interns over just this last year at, their, at Aware as well. So we've really seen that blossom where now hundreds of students are, are 
you know, kind of coming through the doors of OF, coming through the doors of our companies and learning about entrepreneurship, learning about innovation, and then actually forming companies, joining companies, and, and very importantly, staying here in, in Ohio. There's a lady, Julia, who just joined us at AWARE, I think about six months ago. She graduated from Ohio State last year, and she was all set to go out to Silicon Valley. We've probably never seen her again, or maybe you know, 10, 20 years from now, she might have boomeranged back here. But instead of that, she's now the, the, one of the lead finance people at, at AWARE, our cyber company here in town. So that, that my, the whole idea of what OIF could do has expanded rapidly. I mean, in, in terms of, I like to look back five, 10 years from now, 10 years from now, and look back and say, geez, the areas of data science and cybersecurity and software and selling gene therapy and, and, and med tech, you know, we, were, we have 20 companies here in Ohio. Hopefully we'll eventually have 40 and 50. There's really trans, OIF was transformational and kind of recreating and, and renewing the Ohio landscape, the Ohio economy, and, and opportunities for students, alumni, workers at these fast-paced, innovative, exciting startups. Yeah, so you're not only um, contributing investments, you yeah. also, uh, it, it feels to me like um, internship opportunity, but more so um, uh, providing students an opportunity to figure out if entrepreneurship is something that they want to do. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then teaching them the ropes, right? Um, yeah. What better place to learn than working on actual projects for real companies instead of just uh, theoretical case studies? Uh, and so, like you said, for Matthew Benson, and I hope to have him on the podcast soon to talk about yeah. that, and maybe he and I can dive into that if that, that's where the bug actually bit him. Yeah. Um, so how is OIF structured? I mean, you mentioned your LPs, that's Ohio State and OU. Are you raising from other LPs as well? And then how many, what's the size of your average check and how many investments are you doing every year? Yeah, we, so we have seven limited partners. We've announced, uh, three have announced themselves. Uh, Ohio State University and Ohio University were the founding partners. Kent State joined them. And we have three others that are, are, are not announced. Um, and then I'm a limited partner myself too. So I'm, I'm limited partner number seven. So I actually put my money where my mouth is from that perspective based on, you know, some of the success I had out in Silicon Valley. Uh, in terms of investments, we typically do four to five companies per year. So we tend to be very selective. We'll look at, we, we might get in 20, 30, 40 proposals of that, let's say, engage in diligence on a third of those, and then narrow that down to the one investment we might make in any one quarter. Um, because we really then spend a lot of time with those companies. Uh, very different. And part of the reason that the, the, uh, the, the students can become so involved is that in Ohio, you know, we have, for example, Enable Injections has a fellow that runs it down in Cincinnati called Mike Hooven. He had done a company called Atricure that he took public. I think it's close to probably a billion dollar market cap now. So he's an experienced entrepreneur, a successful, you know, exited. Uh, he's exited a company as a CEO. That's not typically the case we run into. So we have to work very closely with the companies, not that they don't have the capability, but they just haven't been through it before. So it's part of you know, making sure that you know, there's different points in the company's evolution where they need to go and bring in the next level of process and leadership. They, they do that too early and, and they become too bloated too quickly. They burn too much money and innovation gets slowed down because it becomes too big company too quick. If they do it too late, things start to go off the rails because there's not enough process as you're trying to scale up. So because of that, we're very you know, uh, selective. Our check size really has ranged. I think our smallest investment is $250,000 in the company, and that's in, at a very early stage. Our largest uh, overall amount in the company is between four to six million. So it's kind of in that, call it from 500,000 to five million is a, is, a, is a reasonable range. Now, you know, founders are always gonna have a complaint yeah. Uh, and I was listening to your Upside FM episode with Jay Klaus. Yeah. Uh, and you were saying percentage wise, you know, 60 percent or more in terms of available capital uh, to fund startups is in the seed uh, stage uh, and maybe 20 percent in Series A or Series B and then maybe another 20 percent beyond that. Yeah. Founders in Columbus, if you go around or Ohio, it's like, is there enough seed capital in Ohio? Like, no, there's nowhere near enough. Yeah. Uh, and your check range, you know, may put you kind of in the range of some seed stage companies. And if I understand correctly, even though ideally you want to see companies coming to you in the Series A to Series B, 
you occasionally, right, if the if the technology is just right and the opportunity is just right, you will look at a seed stage, but very, very limited. So how, yeah. how are you making decisions about that? Just so um, for the founders who might be listening to this, don't uh, eliminate themselves from the yeah. discussion too early. Maybe they have something you want to look at, but they don't think, hey, he's going to fund my company because it's too early. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So for us, coming to OIF as a seed stage company is a no-lose proposition. It's a win-win. Because one or two things are going to happen. In, in, like you said, in a very few cases, but they do happen, we find that the entrepreneur and the opportunity are just so phenomenal and, and just so awesome that we want to get involved right now. Uh, there's been a couple of those cases. Uh, there's a fellow uh, professor, Emery Coxwell, over at Ohio State. He's actually a, a PhD at MIT uh, worked at the Art, uh, Lincoln, MIT Lincoln Labs, at the Artificial Intelligence Lab. He was actually one of the engineers early on as part of MIT for Sycamore Networks, who became a multi-billion dollar company. And he just had a very, very innovative idea in cybersecurity, which is instead of putting wall, companies called Data Anchor, instead of typically trying to wall off data so only certain people can get to it, and then maybe you have you know, dual authentication where you know who can get into it and firewalls and all this stuff, he actually embeds encryption in the data. So right now, I could be interacting with you and sending you very proprietary confidential data that has that built into it. The minute that I no longer want, want you to have access to it, or you kind of gone out of bounds, so to speak, and out of bounds could be someone stole your laptop, or you, know, you can geofence, you can use it in a certain location, that data is gone. And so it was just so innovative and so breakthrough that you know, we wanted to work very closely with him early on. Some of Matt Benson, Benson, when he's trying to kind of create the first or the leading esports e-gaming platform, we're like, okay, for in both cases, for a few hundred thousand dollars, we'd like to get involved early and really help you. Uh, you know, both are first-time entrepreneurs, what, what have you. So that's kind of a best-case win. A worst-case win is that we get to know you, and probably 90% of the Series A investments we make are people we knew from when they're seed investors. Because if they come to you and say, hey, Bill, hey, Jill, hey, Christina, hey, Faith, we here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise $250,000 and achieve A, B, C, D, and E. And they come back to us a year from now and said, we achieved, we did that and achieved A, B, C, D, and E. Or maybe even it was A, B, C, and D. And we didn't do E because we, we heard from the market was we do F and G and we did that instead. That is huge credibility. You know, and, and, and that relationship and trust has been built and we understand what they're doing and so, you know, that I would say no, no uh, uh, entrepreneur can go to a VC tour early and start building that relationship. Go far before when you need the money and just kind of tell them, here's my vision. What's your feedback? Here's what I intend to do. Go out and do it and come back and say, here, I did that and update them along the way. And that builds a ton of credibility, a great relationship. And quite frankly, then the company, you know, we don't talk about portfolio companies because that's like, okay, well, there's like all these companies out there that we're detached from and this can fail, that can't fail. It's almost like we're managing like inanimate objects out there or something like that. We try and take each company as seriously and be as passionate about it as the founder is. We respect that the founder is the founder. It's their idea. It's their blood, sweat, and tears. But we try and treat each company with that same level of respect. Um, and so if you come early to a venture fund like ours, we almost feel we've been part of the founding process and it's not a, a big leap then to lead that Series A round for the company. Okay. Um, and, you know, do you guys find, and I know you have specific industries that you would like to invest in. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that you said when we were on the phone, you said, what gets Silicon Valley excited are, you know, companies that are growing quickly that are scaling and they want to see big exits. And you so you have to think bigger. And yeah. that's one of the issues that you would like to see that as an ecosystem here in Ohio, really start thinking bigger, really start going after big companies, big relationships, big partnerships, like you mentioned, awareness partnership with Facebook and those, those, those kind of relationships. Um, so do you find that you have to be very, very strict in terms of your 
industry or because of just the nature of where we are as an ecosystem right now, are you allowing for some flexibility? Because one of the things that I see also with founders is if a fund is only looking to invest in certain industries, folks tend to eliminate themselves and not even go have a conversation. Whereas you have a company like eFuse and they maybe didn't strictly fall into what you wanted to do, but the opportunity was just there. So do you find that because of Ohio's kind of natural like logistics, maybe you get a lot of logistics pitches or like you said, consumer uh, packaging pitches, that you may stray kind of from uh, your core industries that you want to invest in if the opportunity is right? Yeah, I think you're spot on. Ohio is different than Silicon Valley. There are firms in Silicon Valley that say we do software as a service. We do within med tech. We only do biopharma or we do these type of devices or we in Ohio, we can't be that way. If, if I said we're going to be cyber and data science, I need to have at least 100 or 200 of those companies out there in Ohio to pick the top 10% of to build a portfolio of 10 to 20 companies. It's just not there. So out of necessity, we need to be flexible and we are flexible. I mean, we cannot, we will not attract and build up the Ohio economy. And these could be good things for the founders, but with a bunch of exits at 25 to $50 million, they need to be, a, we, we do want some at a billion plus. We think we'll have that. Um, but a bulk of the exits are probably going to be between $100 million and $500 million. That's the bread and butter of what we're seeing in Ohio. You know, there's solid cybersecurity, solid data science, solid med tech companies. There may be a few like script drop or enable injections that can and, and likely will reach that billion dollar plus either as a public company or, you know, or, or as acquisition. So I, I, never had, I never thought I'd come to Ohio. My first company was actually a biorepository company. And you say that's a fancy word for lab freezer. It's actually, you know, Sterling Ultracold down in, down, in, uh, down in Athens, they produce these you know, kind of industrial grade lab freezers for Genentech and Amgen and Roche and NIH that actually store lab samples for researchers and help them, you know, keep, keep the lab samples safe that they utilize and find the cure for, for different types of cancer and those sorts of things. So we're definitely very flexible because of, of being in Ohio. There's also, even though I was in California, there's another aspect to this, and that is how do you view the world? Do I view the world that Christina and Faith and myself and Jill are, are, the, are the, probably at the, the most smartest, innovative people, and therefore we will determine what our thesis is and where we're going to invest? Or do I believe that, well, we know what we're doing, there is a lot more innovation, smarts, entrepreneurship, just great ideas out there among very innovative entrepreneurial people. And we really believe the latter. So I have a high degree of respect for the creativity, the innovation, the the smarts of people out there to come to us with things we'd never have thought of. Mm -hmm. And so if we're tied into this thesis or that thesis or what have you, we're canceling out the creativity and innovation of, of the market. I mean, who, who 10 years ago could imagine where some of the stuff in AI and machine learning are going to be today and who can really foresee 10 years from now what that's going to look like perfectly? So you know, it's a very different philosophy we have in terms of really respecting the entrepreneurs and seeing you know, things, you know, kind of being very open to very innovative, creative ideas we validate those, right? We got to make sure that it makes sense. There's a good mark, you know, product market fit. But, you know, I had no idea Emory was going to come to me with, you know, embedding security into data. I had no idea Matt was going to come and say, oh, I'm going to create this esports gaming platform. And five years ago, where was esports? Where was he gaming? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably still Xbox and stuff like that. But so it's just a different philosophy from that perspective. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of uh, investing, even though a lot of these folks, you want to see them coming at series A and B, but it's really about picking teams, right? I hear that all the time from an investor perspective. Uh, and you not having a technical background, hopefully you have some affinity for folks who don't have technical backgrounds yes. that are looking to build companies as well. Yeah. Um, do you find that with the successful teams that you look at, they come to you with a clear understanding of the problem that they're looking to solve. Uh, Maybe in some ways that problem is impacting them personally, or given that some of your LPs are universities, do you find that you can also be a successful non-technical factor if you went out 
to let's say the commercialization office and partnered with a scientist that's looking to bring that uh, technology to market. Where, where do you find, is there a fine balance between the two? What are you looking for in the companies that you invest in, the teams that you invest in, a problem that they understand fully and are solving, maybe impacted by it, or somebody who partners, let's say, with a commercialization office and they want to bring that technology to market? Yeah, and we've actually, like you said, there's a balance, we do both. I take one example is someone like uh, Rick Arlo up at Compliant in Cleveland. He was a PhD MD at uh, Case doing clinical research, and he was getting frustrated with binders and, and everything else. And so he, he identified a pain point. He said, I want to do something about this. I want to create a software platform that you know, allows for you know, uh, uh, kind of workflow automation, um, you know, allows you to store things in the cloud versus in binders. Uh, th- those sorts of things. So that's one example. You take uh, Jeff Schumann over at Aware. Jeff was at Nationwide, kind of managing their collaboration platforms. All and he, he saw some real issues around that in terms of if we don't have this compliance, if we don't have security, it, you know, the the the, the CISOs aren't going to allow this to roll out because it needs to be. You know, we can't have harassment. We can't have data, you know, uh, confidential data leakages. Those sorts of things. And so that kind of caused him to form aware. So a lot of times it's people find, finding their own work somewhere, a pain that they want to solve. Um, on the other hand, we have partnered with universities, like in the case of uh, Emory I talked about with Data Anchor. He came through the process through the Technology Commercialization Office over Ohio State, and we partnered with him. And one of the things I forgot to mention earlier, some of the times we bring in people from our network to help as well. So in this case, we brought in one of our venture advisors, Mike Hughes, who was the senior vice president of worldwide sales at Barracuda, which he started when it was a five or $10 million revenue company, built that up to hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue in a billion dollar plus public company as a cyber company to partner with Emory. And they talk every week and kind of go through what's happened that week and, and kind of help provide feedback for Emory and those sorts of things. So it's really a, a mix of both. Now, when somebody, if somebody listens to this and say, hey, I want to talk to Bill, I have an idea, I'm building a company, uh, what do people need to do to prepare in order to engage with you? What are some of your, your, your kind of, hey, you should already know this by now, right, when they go to approach you. How, how should somebody prepare to come to Ohio Innovation Fund with an idea for, or, or a company? Maybe they're looking to raise immediately or they just want to start building a relationship. What, what's the bare minimum in terms of preparation? Bare minimum is really a strong understanding in terms of what you what problem you want to solve. You know, we are going to do this, and it's important for these reasons. Like I said earlier, every successful company that has been exited I've been involved with, in a sentence or two, you can very concisely and impactfully state why they should exist and why they're critically important. For the other ones that aren't successful, they can talk for half an hour, and you're still trying to figure out, okay, that might be nice to have, that sounds kind of okay, but, you know, so that real statement is there. And going, kind of melding that a little bit with your previous question as far as, t- as teams, people that are opening to listen. Because if, if they're willing to listen and take feedback from, oh, what's, you know, what is the market really telling us? You know, do we need to you know, add on this capability? Do we need to, instead of going after this industry, go after that industry? You, know, you have to pivot a lot and be very flexible in a startup. And so we're looking for people that are coming to have a real interaction. So they, they feel like, okay, here's a problem I want to solve. Here's how I want to solve it. Here's some of the steps I want to take. Here's some of the team I want to build. And then really engage in a discussion where they want to, you know, talk about it, receive feedback, incorporate feedback. Because that's so important with the companies we've seen be successful. They will take feedback from their investors, feedback from the board of directors, feedback from the market, feedback back from their teammates, feedback from you know, all over and really incorporate that and into what they're doing to, to, you know, take their company next level. Because really, when we're working with a company, it's really peeling back what is holding back that growth. Is it something in the product? Is it something in the market? Is it something in our messaging? Is it we need to build up the sales team better? What is it? And so you constantly got to be asking and learning and you can't hide anything. You have to be like radical transparency. You want to find out what the problems are so you can address them. What is causing me not to grow at, even faster? Even if I'm growing fast, how can I grow faster? More salespeople, uh, you know, add on this to broaden our, our product offering, attack a new industry segment, whatever it is. And so that's what we're looking for, people that have a defined problem, 
that are very open to market feedback and are very, uh, you know, collaborative and, and, and listen. Yeah. Now, two more things before we wrap. Yeah. The elephant in the room, COVID-19. Yeah. Right. Um, I know you wanted to talk about it because maybe your companies are experiencing. I mean, we're all experiencing yeah. it in one way or another personally. And I'm glad to see that you're doing well. I'm doing well. My family is healthy. So very, very thankful for that. But um, as you, you know, you have a lot of experience in this world. Nobody has seen something like COVID-19. Uh, what are you thinking about as an investor? And, you know, what kind of conversations are you having with your companies regarding COVID-19 and its impacts? Yeah, yeah. We have companies across the board on this. We have some like Script Drop and Aware and a few others that are significantly positively impacted. You know, I think there's an article today in the in local Columbus Press where, you know, we're going to grow at Script Drop much more, you know, seven times, 10 times this year. Uh, over last year. And a big part of that is, you know, is, is, is somewhat COVID driven as well as expanding out our, um, you know, our customer base. Aware does the cybersecurity for collaboration platforms like Slack and Microsoft Teams and Facebook Workplace. So obviously more and more remote working from and work from home. And therefore that's positive. So for those companies, they're seizing the opportunity and trying to embed themselves and really take advantage of a market acceleration where, for example, the case of Script Drop, they did. They, they were accelerating things they were going to deploy two or three years from now into like last month. And so mm -hmm. that's one set. There's another set of our companies that are on balance, like you take Compliant, which does a clinical trial uh, management software in terms of, well, you know, there are some clinical, a lot of clinical trials on hold. There are some COVID-19 trials, but there's also clinical research organizations that want to do things more remotely, efficiently, that our software allows them to assure the compliance of clinical trials in the, that manner much more efficiently and remotely. And there are some that just for now, it's just, you know, revenues are down 30, 40%. And, a lot, and those companies just need to face reality. And they have. We've had some cases where our entrepreneurs and management teams and whole staffs have taken 30% temporary salary reductions. In those cases, we are encouraging our companies to say, okay, Let's, because these people are all, all are committed, passionate, signing up for this uh, for the long term, let's perhaps give them some more equity, some more stock options and those sorts of things to reward their efforts here for when we come to the other side of this. Um, and I am hoping that this downturn isn't as structural as past ones. You know, in, in 2001, uh, with September 11th, that caused a series of events. But one of the things that happened at that point in time were, were, was that basically I think close to half of all software that's purchased was sitting on a shelf. It wasn't implemented. So there's a lot of just companies that didn't make sense that were venture-backed. In 2008, 2009, there's more a structural mortgage crisis, banking crisis that was going to take time to get through. I mean, nothing was really going wrong until COVID hit, right? I mean, the economy was doing pretty well. I mean, you know, things were doing, everything was fine. And then it hit. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that therefore there'll be more of perhaps not a pure V-shaped recovery, but like as we get towards the second half this year, things will start returning with some with social distancing and some other things still in place, start returning a little bit closer to normal and business will start getting back to a little bit closer to normal. So I don't think this is a one or two year uh, you know, downturn from that perspective, but I am encouraging all of our companies to be in a position from a cash runway perspective and operating perspective at the current kind of burn rates and, and, and revenue levels to be able to see themselves well into 2021. Yeah. Now, with that said, um, uh, like you said, there aren't any issues structurally. It seems like the medical community uh, is moving at warp speed right now to find a vaccine and everything changes, right? If yeah. we do find yeah. a vaccine. Uh, and we manage to, to flatten the curve and we yeah. do that over an extended period of time. We don't have issues in the fall. Again, a yeah. lot of uncertainty, yeah. but it feels like uh, it's manageable. Yeah. Are you guys still deploying capital at the same rate despite what's happening now? Or are you finding that a little bit of caution is setting in? Maybe not just at OIF, but across the venture space as well. Yeah, there's definitely been, been much more caution. I'd say, you know, a lot of people, we are not seeing as many new companies being formed right now. I think a lot of people, I mean, it's it's hard to, 
you know, think about how do you get a team together to form a new company right now? Because a lot of the creative process is is back and forth that you can do maybe a little bit over, you know, over uh, you know, video conferencing, but you really need that interaction. So we are not seeing the same level of deal flow that we saw before as far as emerging new startups. Uh, as far as existing startups, you know, we, our first order of business was taking care of our own, right? Making sure all of our own startups are well positioned to yeah, as many as possible get through this. And we're kind of, we've been doing a lot of that throughout March and April and now going to May, most of that's behind us. We feel that most of our, our companies are in a financial position and, and with an operating st- expense structure that does see them well into 2021. Uh, but we are also looking at new companies. We're going to announce a cell and gene therapy investment within the next couple of weeks. So things are going on. Knock on wood, we'll have a successful exit to announce in the next couple of weeks. So there is activity still happening, but definitely more, you know, definitely more cautious. But historically, if you looked at, I mentioned, you know, Dexcom before and Infinera, uh, two companies that I think Dexcom's market cap right now is about 25 billion. Infinera still north of the billion. Those companies were started like in 2002, 2003 for Dexcom. And in 2007, 2000, mostly 2008 for Infinera during the downturn, now is a good time to build up a company. So we are looking at, and we will announce a cell and gene therapy company that is somewhat related to COVID, um, not directly, but, but somewhat related to that, but that we feel we can build up over the next few years because it is a great time to, you know, everyone's very focused right now on, you know, building value, creating value making things happen. So we are being more selective, but we are still deploying capital. All right. Well, I think all great insight. Um, you know, it, again, we're, we're going to play it one day at a time and see what yeah. happens, uh, particularly as some states start to reopen. Yeah. Uh, so these are going to be interesting next couple of weeks because it feels like we're running parallel experiments all over the world uh, with public yeah. health. So we'll, we'll see. Um, so I, I wanted to loop back around in, in this being the final question, uh, talking about, and I think we all hope for Ohio uh, to, to make our big splash uh, on the startup stage uh, and, and start to really be a player. Yeah. Uh, I think some of the, the things that are going to come out of that are uh, more startups getting funded, you know, attracting more venture capital to the state. Um, more economic development, job growth, job creation, particularly high-wage jobs, right? Yeah. So one of the things you said is saying before COVID, the economy was humming along, but we understand that, you know, we still had fellow citizens where a lot of them can't put, uh, can't, can't handle a $400 emergency, right? So how many that number is, we don't know exactly know. There's some issues with the data of the survey that uh, was done to, to in that study, but we know it's a, it's a lot of people. Uh, we have kind of a renewed uh, appreciation for what are called essential workers now. Yeah. And those are folks who uh, maybe haven't been celebrated as they are being or need to be celebrated going forward. So one of the things that you mentioned on our call was we have to have a certain mindset. And so what OIF is doing, and based on what we've, we've talked about so far, I think uh, you're putting in place the things that need to happen in order for us to make that big splash. But what do you think as an ecosystem we need to be doing, right, for uh, to, to get that kind of attention, attract that kind of capital, and really grow jobs? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think... You know, we are, like I said earlier, we are, our companies are doing enough to attract strategic partnerships. So that's the, the first, you know, step in this because strategic partners are going to notice you when they notice you from the market. So Facebook noticed, oh my gosh, at all these workplace de- deployments at these major customers like AstraZeneca, you know, they're using Aware. Maybe we got to partner with this company. So that's that's the first step. I, I really think the next step ha- to get... To get on the map, you have to have exits. You just have to have exits. And I'm hopeful, you know, optimistic that there will be multiple successful exits at, at, at a high level. I mean, I look at companies like Script Drop here in town that, that should be able to exit at a you know, billion or multi-billion dollar type valuation down the line, the way they're growing, the revenues. You look at Enable Injections down in Cincinnati. 
Um, you look at a number, a number of other companies, you know, Amuda in the data science area, aware in the cybersecurity area, Strong Ultra Cold, which is, you know, got a very nice rev- revenue base now down in the, uh, you know, medical device area that maybe are more in the hundreds of millions, um, maybe approaching more than that over time. I think north of a billion, they do have that possibility as they keep, keep moving forward. Uh, I think we just have to be somewhat patient. Um, I think we shoot ourselves in the foot. I've heard some people talk about we're already like the next Silicon Valley today. Because if, if someone flies here with that expectation and says, okay, show me your top 10 data science and cybersecurity, top 10 data science, top 10 cybersecurity companies, top 10 software companies that are going to be unicorns the next year or two, I don't know where I take them. But there are enough that I think we'll, we can start building up. And each, the big thing is that out of each company, look at uh, Cover My Meds, right? Cover My Meds was successful. Well, guess who's running Script Drop? People from Cover My Meds, Nick yeah. and Amanda, right? And that will happen as Aware exits and as Script Drop exits and as these companies exit, they'll be, oh, the head of engineering has this idea. The, you know, the head of product has that idea. This marketing person has this idea. One of the founders has this other idea. The head of data science has this idea. And all of a sudden we'll have five to seven to 10 you know, high potential startups coming out of each success we have. And, and that's, it just takes time. So I think we have to be patient. Um, but, you know, it, it, but like you said, we are seeing people in, in our startups thinking bigger and trying to do things faster because the other, uh, the other thing is if you have a great idea and you think you have a great idea and it is a great idea, you don't have a lot of time because there is talent in Silicon Valley. There's talent in Boston. There is talent in Israel. There's talent in, uh, you know, in, in, in Asia and elsewhere that will replicate what you're doing unless you move fast. So we're starting to see companies move fast and think big. And I think it's just a matter of time over the next three to five to seven years to see that continue to build up. I don't think it's something you can rush. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I guess I'd leave it at that. Yeah. So patience, perseverance, yes. big ideas. Yep. Uh, and, and let's get some exits done. So, Bill, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, and I do my one takeaway uh, at the end of every podcast that I do. And so my one takeaway is um, brevity, right? Understand your problem. Keep it simple and explain it in a way that somebody who has no idea the technical side uh, uh, of your product or service can understand it and be able to explain it to someone else. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. Peace. 614 Startups Nation. It's a wrap. Thank you for listening. You can listen to this podcast on our website, www.614startups.com and on all your favorite podcast channels like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Google Podcasts. Make sure you like, subscribe, and comment. Also, 614startups.com is your one-stop shop for Columbus startup news, interviews, and events. Make sure you make 614startups.com part of your daily routine to stay up to date.